1: Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Boudis. On today's show, we brought on a special guest, Galen Hare. Galen's the owner of Insurance Claim HQ, a property and casualty insurance attorney. Through property and casualty insurance claims, Galen and his team have helped over 800 families rebuild their homes and businesses. They've dedicated their practice to fighting for the rights of policyholders when they experience a loss due to fire, flood, hurricane, or from the insurance company not keeping their word. Galen, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Mark.
1: So I thought insurance and insurance claims specifically, it's a great topic to talk about because unless you've gone through the experience, I don't think a lot of people really understand what happens when they have to file a claim. Maybe you can start off by just walking us through what what what's the process? What happens maybe if someone has a fire or something happens to their home and they actually have to file a claim?
2: So there's kind of like the the perfect world and then the world we live in, right? So in a perfect world, something happens to your home you call your insurance company, you call like their claim number, which is usually the easiest number to find for them. Um, 24 hours a day, you can reach them and they send someone out. They help you figure out what it's going to cost to fix whatever the damage to your property is, help you figure out kind of short-term things like do I need somewhere to live? What's it going to take to recover? And about a month later, you get a check and you're made whole. If there's any little revisions, they get done. And you move on with your life and try to forget that that tragedy happened. That's the perfect world. And the system is fundamentally set up that way um, where it suddenly becomes imperfect. And in fact, sometimes as far from perfect as possible is during that process that I mentioned, where they're supposed to be helping you figure out what it's going to take to fix everything. Sometimes this game designed to reduce the amount of money Because all insurance claims are a zero-sum game, right? A dollar to you means a dollar that they don't have. So suddenly this game starts to figure out how to diminish the amount of money that they will pay you. Unfortunately, that's not diminishing the amount of money they're going to pay you by coming up with really cool construction techniques or getting you really long-lasting materials, right? It's just not paying you what you're owed. So that's kind of where I come in is that step of that process. That often frustrates so many people and really has been doing that since about the late 90s, but it's gotten very prevalent over the last decade or so.
1: What are some of the things they do to kind of like, like you mentioned, diminish the amount that they pay you? Is it that they just say there's something in the policy that says this isn't covered, or we're going to try and do this cheaper? Or what do they do?
2: Yeah, so there's a ton of different ways to do that, right? So at the end of the late 90s, one of the big insurance companies hired a consulting company to come in and coach them on how they could underpay claims. And since then, not only was that incredibly effective, but of course, then a decade later, the financial market would crash, a lot of insurance executives would lose their jobs, they would be dispersed to other insurance companies. And this method of handling claims would start to infect American claims handling kind of across all companies and all regions and all markets. So what we see now is there's this entire bag of tricks, right? And they're always being worked on, but they come in a few basic forms. The first one is kind of misrepresenting what's in the policy and what will be paid for. It's interesting. You can call your agent or an adjuster, and it seems like they have your policy memorized. The second you tell them about some damage, they say, oh, well, that's not covered. But have they opened the policy and read it? Um, So that's bad, obviously, and that's as close to a lie as you can really get without quite crossing into that, is saying something when you haven't taken the effort to find out if it's true. But that's not even where most of it happens. Kind of in the next area where most of the underpayments happen is in figuring out what that number actually is, okay? And they can do that a few ways. The first way is they misrepresent the age or the longevity of your materials. That's called excessive depreciation. The second way is they misrepresent what it's going to take or the scope of the damage. And the third way, which has become just absolutely rampant and is one of the things I dedicate a lot of my, I I hesitate to use the words, but a lot of my free time to stopping is hiring quote unquote experts that are not experts at all and will simply say whatever a carrier needs them to say in order to deny all or part of a claim. And I would say that is where the insurance company gets the most bang for their buck.
1: Well, what step do you get involved in when the it comes back less than what the policyholder expected? They say they can either just go with it and take it or they can actually challenge it.
2: Yeah. So I, I get involved at in different steps depending on the nature of the consumer. Some consumers that are very savvy and have been through a number of claims before, Bring us on the second they have a claim. I mean, literally, we open the claim for them. However, consumers that haven't necessarily experienced this or haven't had to go through this due to all the marketing that insurance companies do say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to first give my carrier an opportunity to make it right. I have no problem with that, by the way. But they come to me at that point when they kind of have gotten that check that's insulting. And then a third segment of customers come to us almost too late if that makes sense so what happened is not only have they gotten an insulting number but being the good people that they are and being as ambitious as they are and as self-confident as they are they thought they could get the carrier to do the right thing by collecting bids showing them information and by the time they come to me they are just beyond frustrated and have just no faith left in the process because they have just been beaten and abused so many times during the claims process. And then finally, I guess there's one more segment of people that come to me and they're, they're the funniest ones. They're what I call the I'm happy, right? Because what happened is they got their claim. They got woefully underpaid, but they've been conditioned to accept that. So they did accept it. And then only later they saw someone else get treated better than them or fundamentally fairly when they weren't. And they suddenly realized that they actually were not treated well. Um, and, and I like those the best. They're, they're the funnest ones because we watch that kind of mindset shift and they suddenly realize that maybe they, they everyone's just been so conditioned, right? Billions of dollars every year towards insurance advertising. And it's never insurance advertising of, hey, we'll underpay your claim. It's like all the slogans that talk about how great they are, right?
1: Yeah. Going back to the claim itself, who controls, I guess, each part of the, the claim? Like, for example, if I'm filing a claim, can I go out and get contractors to bid for it? Or is the insurance company controlling that?
2: Yeah. So the insurance company controls everything, but you do have the right to do whatever you need to do to work your claim, right? So the carrier is going to send out their own adjusters. And, and this is kind of where sometimes the process starts to break down unbeknownst to other people. Some of these adjusters have no experience. Others of these adjusters will write A very fair estimate, but then there's a desk adjuster that will cut that estimate down. So even a good estimate sometimes becomes a bad estimate. And then third, sometimes there are very, very experienced adjusters that have been working on the insurance side so long that rather than writing for the damage that exists and that was caused by that particular casualty, a storm, whatever it may be, They don't write for things that they see because they say, well, this carrier will never pay for that. That's against their internal policy, not their insurance policy, their internal policy, right? So they say, well, this carrier doesn't pay for this type of damage, so I just don't write it. And that's really frustrating because I depose them later and they admit to me they saw the damage. They thought it was real damage. It needed to be fixed. They just didn't even put it down.
1: And if I disagree with what the adjuster comes back, can I go and hire my own adjuster? You can and you should.
2: I would not recommend that pretty much any insured out there, unless they get their first check from their insurance company and they're just amazed at how much money it is, I think every insured out there should go get a public adjuster, go get a very qualified contractor and that comes with a massive caveat, or get an attorney that does this type of work. And that massive caveat on a qualified contractor is keep in mind, contractors are there to bid the jobs. And the way contracting works is foreign to a lot of people, right? If I am going to build a building and I'm going to go hire three contractors to get bids, all three are going to give me competitive bids and they're going to underbid each other. I ultimately am going to go with the lowest bid from a contractor I trust, right? So let's take a pause right there. That means if you're going to submit contractor bids, you better only go get bids from contractors you trust, first of all, right. because the lowest guy, Joe in a truck, your carrier might say, OK, we'll pay that because that's a nice low bid. But that's no one <laughs> you like want that. in your house ever. Right. <laughs> so so take a pause there and then keep going down that. There's also change orders and change orders are really frustrating. But anyone that's been through a build knows about change orders. Contractors turn around. And say all the time, oh, it's going to cost more. Oh, there was this additional damage. Oh, we didn't anticipate this. Sign here. Your money's going up, right? You're going to have to pay us more. Mm -hmm. Insurance companies don't like that. And you kind of have to explain to them why that's happening. So keep in mind, your lowest bid may not be your lowest bid. And it may not even be a reasonable bid. They may have underbid the job to get the job and then have planned on telling you they need more money to continue going. This happens all the time.
1: When you say it, insurance companies don't like when contractors do this, does does not like mean that they deny it or uh, just frowned upon?
2: Yeah, a lot of times they say, look, we know you've got a $70,000 change order here, but we're going to pay the original hundred. Mm-hmm. And you know, we don't know why this 70 is going on. Maybe you're asking for upgrades. Maybe it's taking longer because of you. We're not paying for it. It's not our problem. Goodbye. And now you've got this contractor who's halfway through your house, but demanding 70,000 more than you have and an insurance company that won't pay it. And that happens all the time. So, you know, when I do get contractor bids, which I shy away from unless I know the contractor, I say, I want your lump sum bid that I can sign on the dotted line and you will agree to be contractually bound to do all the work for this price with no outs. And that is the only type of estimate I submit to an insurance company.
1: Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some of the problems with change orders. What happens next? The work gets done and the policyholder moves on and it's like it never happened?
2: Yeah, if the insurance company pays sufficient funds, then you get the contractor to do the work. There will be something called recoverable depreciation, a lot of policies where you show the carrier that the work was done and they'll kind of submit the little bit that you were short. You should be short by nature because most policies pay something called um, replacement cost value. And they hold back some of that money until the work is done. So you'll get that little bit of money released, you'll give it to the contractor, and you'll move on with your life. The problem is a lot of people have trouble getting to that part where they have the money to pay. But once you get there, it's all about just being a good consumer, hiring the right contractors, making sure you're watching the job, making sure you're managing money, right? It's getting to that point where you have sufficient funds. That's really the pressure point.
1: So you're essentially a project manager on this right that it's not the insurance company that's running this and making sure that the contractor does this and it costs this it's at some point you're running the project.
2: yeah, and you know that's what's really interesting about it is you'll look at some of these estimates and you'll hear things you can google it. it's all over the place, right? Certain insurance companies won't pay overhead and profit. What that means is that's the 10 in 10, the general contractors, like 10% and 10%, the general contractors typically add to their hard costs that they're paying their subs and stuff. And that gives them a little bit of profit and p- gives them some money to pay people to oversee everything. So you're doing that yourself. That's fascinating when you think about it. When your carrier is refusing to pay overhead and profit, they're essentially saying you need to serve as the general contractor for free. Right. That's wild.
1: Yeah. <laughs> What's, what's changed with the, the claims process over the years? Has there been big changes? I know technology's come and, and impacted almost everything. Has it come and impacted the, the insurance claims process as well?
2: It has. Um, in some ways, it's helped. In some ways, it's hurt. So some carriers are trying to do virtual inspections. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. I don't think that works. I don't think that I can hold up my iPhone to this wall over here and you can figure out how wet it is. I don't think so. I think you need to touch it. You need to smell in the air. Am I smelling mold? Like, what concerns do I have, right? Um, So I think that's been bad for consumers, but there's been some really cool technological advances for consumers that mainly consumer advocates are using and less insurance companies, right? For instance, drones. Drones are so common now. Those used to be ridiculous. You couldn't even imagine being able to afford one. Now, like, everyone that works in this stuff can actually by drones, right? So you can get these drones that are like outfitted with infrared cameras and you can fly over a roof and see if moisture is coming in through that roof. That's really cool. Um, There's 3d modeling of homes and damaged buildings. That is wild. We can now do that all the time. And we do that on a ton of our clients. Most of our clients, we get 3d modeling so we can kind of freeze in time the damage there. So even if we start to build, even if we have to do emergency mitigation, we could show a jury down the road exactly what that home looked like right after that storm. In fact, we just had a storm in New Orleans, and I've got a group of people out there 3D modeling some churches and homes right now because the storm was last night. Later, if they get paid fairly, fantastic. But if they don't and they have to go to trial, we're going to be able to show exactly what it looked like in that house the day after the storm.
1: Wow. Do you ever come across cases where, let's say, as a consumer, I own a home, I get homeowner's insurance, I get this policy It's 100 pages long. I don't know how many people actually read it and go through what's actually included in it or not. And the homeowner thinks there's something that it covers. Maybe it was not covered or it was excluded. And then there's the, okay, the actual claim comes about and maybe they thought that the insurance agent told them it was included or it wasn't. Is it as straightforward as no, if it's the policy is the policy, and if it's not in the policy, then it's not covered? Or is there any instances you've had where maybe there was some kind of communication issues where something does get covered when it doesn't explicitly say it.
2: So yes and no, right? Um, There's a lot in there to unpack. So contract interpretation is the type of law that we're dealing with when we're talking about an insurance policy. And there's all these rules and those rules vary state by state. It's a lot of fun to keep track of them if you practice in multiple states like I do. And one of the things we have to look at is what the intent of the parties is and what the contract says and who has negotiation power. And by and large, the language in the contract is going to govern with some small exceptions. However, sometimes language is not clear as far as what's excluded, what's covered, etc. And that's kind of where a lot of lawyers have to lawyers that actually do this work that are skilled in this work have to deal in that gray area a lot. A lot of the claims that get brought to me aren't very simple, like, oh, it was a fire and it says on the face of the policy, this does not cover fire losses. It's like, well, you know, a pressure cooker blew up and explosions are excluded, but not necessarily damage caused by appliances, right? So what is that, right? And, And kind of figuring out what that means within the language of that policy. But to your point, sometimes a policy is issued that is actually contrary to the party's agreements. And then we have to look at what we call like broker or agent liability. Likely what happened is someone did not communicate with the insurance company appropriately. And we have to see if that person fits whatever that state's definition is for usually like it's a negligence or errors and omissions claim. And most of those people actually have their own insurance to cover that. So we do have to file claims against brokers and agents. I, I don't want to say all the time, but, but it's not uncommon because the carrier is not providing coverage, but that really isn't our client's fault.
1: Do you come across a lot of uh, fraud cases? And maybe you can even talk about what insurance fraud is.
2: (laughs) So insurance fraud in its simplest form, right, is just making a misrepresentation to garner proceeds during an insurance claim. But it's not that simple. So when you or I hear insurance fraud or anyone listening to this, they probably think of the typical Example, which is a consumer lying about damage they had in order to get more money, and by the way, that does happen. Like there was a study that says twenty-four percent of consumers are willing to pad a claim because they don't feel bad that the insurance company's paying, and and that's wrong. In many states, that's a felony. Like we should not do that. I do not advocate lying on your claim ever, (laughs) Um, and and I only laugh about it because I I hear it so much. Because one of the things I get attacked for professionally and personally is I talk about all insurance fraud. And the reality is carriers commit fraud too. Or carriers hire people to commit fraud for them. So where it kind of becomes complicated, and a lot of carriers don't like to talk about this, is for instance, there was an example after Hurricane Sandy, a lot of examples, where engineers were going out and looking at homes and writing reports saying this home was damaged by the wind. And then someone was editing the reports to say this home was not damaged by the wind. And they were using that to deny claims. That became a huge deal. The New York Attorney General got involved. Congress got involved. Thousands of claims got opened up. Hundreds of millions of dollars were released to people that had previously not been released. And that's not like extra money. That's not like penalties. That's money that people previously weren't paid as a direct result of fraud. And that's like a glaring example. But the reality is, this stuff is criminal and it causes homelessness, it causes joblessness, it causes suicide, it causes divorce. You know, when a carrier is lying to not pay you, that's a bad thing. So all fraud is bad, but it kind of should be equal. And because of the way insurance fraud works, we don't hear about that second piece. Yeah.
1: And I know you mentioned how your company comes in or you you come in and you mentioned the different ways, whether someone might hire you up front, maybe you know, they get to a point where there was something that they weren't expecting from the insurance company, and then they bring you in. But what does an engagement look like? If someone brings you out in upfront, are you running the whole thing, including that project management aspect of it? Or are you simply just looking at the different, I guess, legal aspects of it?
2: Yeah, primarily the legal aspects, but we do try to provide holistic service. So if we notice that you're having additional living expense issues, or you're having trouble finding something or getting something, we try to provide those additional services outside the scope of our representation, free of charge, of course. Um, We get a lot of calls as construction is progressing. Well, this came up, that came up. So we kind of have to help the contractor and the homeowner or the business owner navigate those issues. But generally speaking, what we focus on is what the policy is going to provide what damage is there and getting the insurance company to release funds in conformity with that policy, either without filing suit or through a litigation process?
1: What does litigation typically look like? Is it you go to the insurance company and do a lot of the cases go to trial? Is Are a lot of them kind of settled before trial?
2: Yeah. So normally the way it works is if you have damage to your home and the carrier has not paid, we're going to give it a really good effort to try to resolve it without the necessity of filing suit for a few reasons. Our fees are lower. It's easier for everyone. It's less stressful for everyone. We will try to resolve it. However, a lot of the time carriers are just conditioned To be sued, right? They get sued all the time. They have their own litigation budgets. It doesn't hurt their feelings. They're not scared. So they get sued a lot. So we have to sue them a lot. Depending on the specific disaster, where it is, what court it is, the process may look different. But generally speaking, we do something called discovery. That is not typically a pleasant process for the carrier. They have to give us all these documents they don't want to give us. They have to let us depose people they don't want us to meet. They don't want us to hear about their internal policies. There's a lot of fighting during that process. And I would say that the discovery process itself is probably the reason that very few cases go to trial. Cases do go to trial, but I think carriers aren't particularly willing to undergo the expense and the time and then the risk of having a jury come back against them. I mean... Google jury verdict insurance, right? And it's pretty rare that an insurance company gets a win. It's pretty often that they get a major, major loss. Uh, The most recent big hurricanes that we've had. So Ida was just a big one, but none of those cases have made it through to trial Hurricane Laura and Delta from 2020. They just had their first trial, it was a complete win for the victims. Carriers know this. They know that juries don't particularly feel bad for insurance companies. So as long as the client is an honest person, is a good person, and actually was aggrieved, they know they're losing. So as a result, a lot of these cases don't make it to trial. But you have to have a lawyer that is willing to take it to trial because otherwise they know that and they will push it all the way.
1: What happens to the, to the policyholder? You mentioned in the beginning, there's like a straightforward claim. You know, they file a claim, their house has a fire, they file a claim, they get paid, everything gets constructed, and they go on their way. Is it just their premiums go up? Do they not go up? Does the insurance company say, we no longer want to insure you? What happens to the to the policyholder? In
2: most states, their premiums should not go up, and they should not be dropped as a result of filing a lawsuit over a valid claim. There is an exception in most states as well, which is when the loss was really their doing. Okay, and and it's not really the lawsuit that's causing it. Right. Fire is a very common one. If you were that person that seems to have a propensity for leaving candles by curtains, a carrier is not going to see you as a reasonable risk after a certain number of claims. Right. Um, They just say we cannot afford to cover this person. We can't even charge this person enough money for it to make sense for us to cover this person. But floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, hailstorms. There's no way that your personality is contributing to that damage. So typically, that's not held against you. Your premiums may still go up as a result of a geographic rate increase. So for instance, in the areas that were just pummeled by hurricanes and tornadoes, they may see their rates go up next year, but they'll probably see that whether they make a claim or not. Now, that's not uniform across all states, but that's kind of the general process.
1: So is that going to be the same if they change carriers? I guess that would be the same most likely that... If one carrier is raising rates because of ge- you know something going on geograph- ge- geographically, another carrier is going to do the same the same thing.
2: Often, but every once in a while, a carrier will say, "We're going to make a move on this market by keeping our rates lower, and that's going to allow us to get a bigger market share."
1: And, but then, is it the same thing on the like I guess that first example where someone who leaves candles by curtains, and if the insurance company says, "You know what? You've done this too many times. We no longer can insure you."
2: Oh yeah, they they pull your claims history. They pull your claims history when you have a claim, they pull your claims history sometimes when they're doing underwriting. It just depends on how careful they are, right? If you were that person that is constantly setting your house on fire, obviously if you're doing it intentionally, you're probably going to jail, but if you're accidentally doing it, you've got a problem. And that's not your fault per se, but you've got a problem. Carriers are going to have trouble finding a price point where it makes economic sense for them to cover you just because, frankly, you're really clumsy and your clumsiness has contributed to serious claims.
1: Is there a master claims database that these insurance companies can look at or are they relying on you disclosing it in in an application?
2: Yes and yes. So they can pull that information, but they are asking you that on a lot of applications. And if you lie, that could be a felony. And if you lie, even if they don't have you charged, they could use that later to deny an an existing valid, meritorious claim. I've seen it happen. I've seen claims where people had nothing to do with the claim at all. It was a good claim. It was a solid claim, but they told a fib on their application that in reality didn't really affect the claim or the cause of the claim, but the carrier was still able to pay zero as a result of that.
1: Wow. Any other mistakes you see people make during the claims process that if they knew about maybe they would, it would make it a smoother process.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, we've kind of hit on it, generally speaking, but I think the overarching mistake people make is that carriers do this for a living and you don't. So unless you are an insurance adjuster, I don't think you should be handling your claim yourself. I really don't. And sometimes that's unpopular. But at the end of the day, keep in mind what this is. This is your home. This is your business. It's your livelihood. The biggest investment most of us make is in our house or our business. I don't think you leave your biggest investment that you've ever made up to people that aren't professionals in this area. I just it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Well, we're just about about out of time, Galen. I want to thank you for being on the show. You gave some great info on the insurance claim process. Uh, how can people find out more about you and what you do?
2: So yeah, we're on all the social media channels. Insurance Claim HQ. And then you can go to our website, insuranceclaimhq.com, and you can call us 24 hours a day at 844-CLAIM-84.
1: Great. We'll link to all that in the show notes. Thank you again, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in today.
2: Thanks, Mark.
0: Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of his financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.